Tonight we'll be uh, beginning, but uh, not actually completing, Leviticus uh, chapter 23. We'll be uh, tonight in Leviticus 23, verses uh, 1 through uh, 22. But uh, before, we, uh, before we begin reading, uh, let me just kind of uh, sketch out where we're going, the two main points, and I want to actually uh, draw attention to a couple of, couple of things uh, preliminarily that will hopefully be helpful to us as we read through the chapter so we can have a little bit of an idea of what's going on. Uh, the two, two main points for tonight is, number one, the shadow of the festivals, and then number two, the fulfillment of the shadow. So the shadow of the festivals, we'll be looking at the text, trying to understand what's going on here, the fulfillment of the shadows, seeing how these things are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now, uh, as you can see, just in looking at the chapter, this is a chapter that contains the prescriptions for the religious festivals of the Israelite. And in connection with Numbers chapter 9, Numbers uh, chapters 28 and 29, and Deuteronomy 16, uh, these contain the instruction for these festivals, where they were to take place, what was to take place at the time of these festivals, when in the calendar year they were to take place. And so, uh, as I said, I want to make a couple of comments preliminarily and uh, dealing with some of the terminology that we find here in the chapter. First, in regard to uh, what, is, uh, what is called the holy convocations here in the chapter, and second, in regard to, uh, to the term Sabbath, as is used here in the chapter. Now, throughout, we find uh, reference to uh, what are called holy convocations. You see this uh, in the New American Standard, the ESV, King James Version. NIV translates uh, the phrase as sacred assemblies. And indeed, the word which is translated here as convocation has historically been regarded as an assembly, that is, a gathering together of people. And I think, I think it's best to understand it in that way. But with that being said up front, I think it is helpful to acknowledge that the word that's translated as convocation is derived from the verb which appears as proclaim up in, uh, up in verse 2. And so if you look at uh, verse 2, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim... As holy convocations, my appointed times are these. And so uh, this, this word proclaim is, uh, is the verb, and then related to that is the word that's, that's translated as convocations. Potentially, uh, this could be translated as proclamation. Sometimes uh, in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, the word is translated in our English versions as reading. And so uh, one scholar translated verse 2 here of Leviticus 23 by saying, speak to the Israelites, and say to them the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as proclaimed holy days, these are my appointed times. And so, as I said, I would go with convocation in the sense of a gathered assembly, and this is the way that largely it's historically been understood. And, uh, and so, but I think it is helpful to, uh, to get that out there, that there is uh, a little bit of, uh, of nuance to it and may not be uh, 100% clear as to uh, entirely what these convocations were to be like on, uh, on all occasions. And 
What we find in the chapter is that not all of these convocations were of the same sort. Some of these were, were national feasts to which the Israelites were to go up to the appointed place of worship, first at the tabernacle, later at the temple. Deuteronomy 16, the legislation is given concerning those three feasts, the Passover feast, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three are uh, the, the national pilgrim feasts, you might say. In Deuteronomy 16, 16, uh, tells us that three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And so there were these three pilgrim feasts, these three national assemblies that all of the males of Israel were to go up for. That would have been too impractical to have a national assembly every seventh-day Sabbath, modes of transportation being what they were. Some people who lived far away from Shiloh or Jerusalem, uh, they would have done nothing but travel all week and would do nothing the next week but travel were they supposed to go to Jerusalem or Shiloh every week. And so these holy convocations are not all of the same type, but they were nevertheless holy convocations, a time to set aside uh, from their normal course of work and to rest, perhaps to gather together with other uh, members of the Israelite community to hear the word of God and to pray. One writer, in fact, went so far as to say that the observance of the Sabbaths was a layman's way of demonstrating fidelity to God. In other words, this was, this was a key part of their, uh, their piety as the people of God, was the observance of these Sabbaths as described here. And that brings us to the second term that I wanted to discuss preliminarily, namely the Sabbath. Usually when we think of the word Sabbath in the Old Testament context, we're thinking of the seventh day Sabbath rest. And in large part, that assumption is correct. But what we find here in Leviticus chapter 23 is that that is not always the case, that the word Sabbath is also used in regard to a day of rest that occurs in connection with one of these holy convocations, even if the day itself does not fall on the seventh day Sabbath. And so just to consider a couple of examples from here in the chapter, if you look down to, uh, to verse 24, uh, you'll see uh, a reference there in verse 24. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So New American Standard translates it as rest, ESV, solemn rest. King James Version literally renders it as Sabbath. And so the first of the seventh month was a Sabbath for the Feast of Trumpets. And this holds true even if that day didn't fall on the seventh day of the week. Likewise, if you look down to verse 39 in regard to the first and eighth days of the Feast of Booths, there was to be a rest, a Sabbath, even if those days did not fall on the seventh day of the week. All of that to say is that sometimes when we read the word Sabbath, it's not necessarily the seventh day of the week. It might be a specific rest that is appointed for one of these one of these feasts. And so with those preliminary things stated, let's, let's look at the first eight verses here of Leviticus 23. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, 
which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times, are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then, on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. Now, inasmuch as we've recently spent some time considering uh, the Sabbath day in the exposition of Genesis 2, we'll, we'll pass by uh, verse 3 uh, for this evening and, and pick up there in verse 4 with the beginning of this instruction for the Passover. Now, we know from Exodus 12 the historical circumstances of the Passover. We know the events leading up to the Passover, how the Lord had sent the various plagues on the people of Egypt. Pharaoh's heart had been hardened. He refused to let the people go. And finally, the Lord announced that there would be one more plague, a plague in which the firstborn of all Egypt would die, and after that, then Pharaoh would let the people go. But the Lord, in his mercy, had provided a way by which his people would be spared from the plague. Each household was to take a lamb, an unblemished male, a year old, and that lamb would be slain at twilight on the 14th day of the month, which in Jewish reckoning is the month of Nisan. Or if a household was too small to consume a lamb, then they could share a lamb with their neighbors. And of course, they were to put that blood on the doorpost and over the lintel of the doorframe. The lamb was to be roasted with fire, eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. All was to be eaten that night, nothing left over until the morning. If any part was left over, it had to be burned. The blood that was put over the house was a sign. The Lord promised that when he saw the blood, he would pass over them so that no plague would fall upon them. The Egyptians would be judged and punished, but the Lord would spare his people because of the blood of the Lamb. This was the Passover. And then, as we see in the text, in connection with the Passover was the ordinance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To commemorate the deliverance which had been given by the Lord, the Israelites are commanded to keep this feast throughout their generations. From the 14th day to the 21st uh, of Nisan, they were to keep this feast. And on the first day of the feast, they're to remove all of the leaven from their dwellings, and for seven days, they are to eat unleavened bread. And so the Passover lamb is to be killed at twilight on the 14th of Nisan, or more literally, between the two evenings. And by that, they mean between the, uh, the time when the sun sets and when night actually falls. So in that period, the, uh, the lamb was to be slain. And then uh, the following day, the 15th, begins the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. According to Deuteronomy 16.3, unleavened bread is the bread of affliction. This was what they were to eat to remind themselves of the affliction of Egypt and the haste with which the nation had to come out of Egypt. They didn't have time to let the bread rise as they normally would. 
And moreover, we learn in Numbers 9 that it's necessary to be ceremonially clean in order to participate. The ceremonial cleanliness was to represent spiritual purity, was to represent the holiness required by the Lord that the people were set apart for the Lord. And so this is the, the Passover. The people were to commemorate and remember the way in which the Lord had delivered them by these particular means. And we should notice uh, the, uh, the language there in verse 7, though, that marks a distinction between some of these holy convocations. Verse 7 says that on the first day, that is the first of the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 15th of the month of Nisan, that on that day there was to be a holy convocation. And it is specifically said that they were not to do any laborious work, or King James translated it as servile work. And if you compare what's said there in verse 7 about the first of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you compare it with what's said about the Sabbath up in verse 3, you'll notice a distinct difference. Because up in verse 3, it was to be a Sabbath of complete rest. And the same is true later on in the chapter, uh, which Lord willing we'll consider in a couple of weeks with regard to the Day of Atonement. It was to be a complete rest. Not merely don't do any laborious work, but don't do any work at all. And so there's a, there's a distinction between the way that these holy convocations were to be Observed. Some required a complete rest, some a cessation simply of laborious work. As, uh, as John Gill put it on these uh, feasts when they were forbidden from laborious work, they might bake bread or boil or roast their meat or walk abroad, which they might not do on their Sabbaths, and therefore it is so expressed as to distinguish it from the work forbidden on that day. And so, on these days when they're forbidden from laborious work, they have to cease from their regular occupations. On the Sabbaths of complete rest, it's a complete rest. So there's a, a difference in regard to the, the work that's prohibited, different days requiring different measures. And uh, we, see, uh, we see similar language of the forbidding of laborious work in verse 8, in regard to the convocation of the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you see it down in verse 21 with regard to the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. You see it in verse 25 in regard to the convocation on the first of the seventh month, the, the Feast of Trumpets. You see it again down in verses 35 and 36 in regard to the first and the eighth days of the Feast of Booths. So, there's a distinction amongst these, these convocations and what may and what may not be done. Now let's look ahead to, uh, to verses 9 through 14, which speaks of the, the offering of the first fruits. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering, a fourth of a hen of wine." Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain 
nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling place. And uh, so here we see the, the offering of the, the sheaf of the first fruits. This sheaf was to be the, the first of the harvest. It's to be taken to the priest and then held up and waved by the priest before the Lord. Now this, according to verse 11, is to be done on the day after the Sabbath. And what this means, kind of following in the, the context here of chapter 23, the, the day after the Sabbath in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now there's been a uh, disagreement among some interpreters of this verse as to whether the Sabbath here is in reference to that, that first day of holy convocation, the day after that Sabbath, or does it mean the day after the seventh day Sabbath that falls during the week of the Passover? And I realize that might be a little bit confusing, but just to put the question in more concrete terms, let's think about a particular Passover week, the Passover week in which our Lord was killed. And so on that week, the Passover lamb is slain Thursday evening. That night, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. That's the night that Judas betrays him. And so that Thursday is the 14th of the month. The next day, what we think of as Good Friday, is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 15th of the month. And thus, therefore, that Good Friday was a Sabbath in the secondary sense, a Sabbath in the sense of verse 7. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. That Saturday following was a seventh day Sabbath, right? The Saturday that Jesus was in the grave was a Sabbath in the seventh day since. And so to bring verse 11 to this example, the question is, what's the day after the Sabbath? Was it Saturday, because there had been a Sabbath on Friday, beginning the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so was that the day they waved the sheaf on Saturday, or was the day after the Sabbath on Sunday, because Sunday is the day after the seventh day Sabbath. Now, uh, most interpreters, uh, I think, tend to, uh, tend to lean toward thinking that the Sabbath referred to is the Sabbath which is the first day of the feast. And so that would mean that in the, uh, the week of, of, of Jesus' crucifixion that they would have waived it on Saturday because Good Friday was the Sabbath in the sense that it was the first of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The day after the Sabbath was an actual Sabbath, but nevertheless, uh, that's what most people seem to think is that it would have been waived on that Saturday. Now, as you can see from verse 14, until the sheaf of the first fruits was offered up, no bread or roasted grain or new growth was to be eaten by them until that, until that sheaf had been waved. That is to say that people were not permitted to eat any of the new grain of that year's harvest until the, fr- the first fruit of the grain was offered. They must continue to eat of the old grain until that offering was offered. One writer put it this way, and saying, since God was the owner of the land, its produce by right belonged to him. Yet when they dedicated the first ripe produce of the land to God, he released the rest of the harvest for their use. Once its first ripe produce had been consecrated for divine use, God used the rest of the produce to let his blessing rest on their households. So the sheep of the first fruits has to be offered before the rest can be used and enjoyed by the people. 
Now let's look down to uh, verses 15 through, through 22 to see uh, the rule in regard to the, the Feast of Weeks. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. On this same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And so these verses describe for us the, the Feast of Weeks. There are these seven weeks between the beginning of the barley harvest, which is celebrated with the offering of the sheaf of the first fruits, which we saw up in verses uh, 9 through 14. And now here they, they count off seven weeks from that beginning of the barley harvest to the end of the wheat harvest, which is celebrated 50 days after that sheaf of the first fruits had been waved. And this passage here lays out for us then the specific sacrifices which were to be made that day, which is, in our terms, the day, the day of Pentecost. And so the reason why in Acts 2 you had all of these Jews from all of, uh, all of the Roman world gathered there in Jerusalem was because it was one of the pilgrim feasts, and they uh, were supposed to be going up to the place that the Lord had chosen. That's why they were there. And... You notice there in verse 17 that a part of the offering is two loaves of bread uh, that are made for the wave offering, and these are made with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. In Exodus 34:22, the Feast of Weeks is actually referred to as the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and also called the Feast of the Ingathering. In other words, this is a fitting way to conclude. The, the harvest, and again to acknowledge, as in the offering of the sheaf of the first fruits, that all of the blessings of the harvest, from, from the first sheaf all the way to the wheat that had been ground and baked into leavened bread, all of this had come from the Lord's hand on the land that ultimately belonged to the Lord. And being the Lord of the land, you'll notice in verse 22 that he also made provision for the poor. The people are commanded here not to reap to the edges of the field, not to gather the gleanings. They are to leave these for the poor and the alien to gather. And we see this, of course, practically illustrated in the book of Ruth. 
And this is a, a helpful reminder that everything that we have comes from the Lord and therefore is subject to be used as the Lord prescribes. And though this uh, particular provision in regard to the uh, leaving the edges of the field and uh, allowing them to be gleaned by the poor and the alien is part of the, the ceremonial law, which is uniquely applicable to Israel, nevertheless, there is a moral principle here, and that principle is that we do need to care for those who are poor and needy. Obviously, we need to be wise, we need to be thoughtful about how this is done, but we do need to do it. And while we're here in in thinking about this, I think it is uh, helpful to, to notice how this was done in the Old Testament context. The command here is is given in such a way that requires the poor and the needy to work, right? The command here is not to glean the edges of your field and uh, and lay it all up in storehouses for the poor. The command is, is to leave it there. In other words, entrust it to the, the industry of the poor and the alien for them to go out and to, to gather. And, of course, we know that when Ruth showed up in Bethlehem, they didn't say, well, there's the granary over there, go, go help yourself. Now, Boaz was certainly generous and kind to her, had his men pull out stalks of wheat for her, but when Ruth showed up, she went to work in accordance with the established law and was able to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law. And so, yes, we do want to care for the poor and needy, but it is also, I think, worth our notice that the way the Old Testament system was, was set up was it was uh, set up explicitly in a way that, uh, that did require the poor and the needy to work as they were able to do. And so, uh, as I said, we're, we're going to, to stop tonight at, at verse 22. And so we've seen, we've seen the shadows of these, of these festivals, right? Verse, verse 3 talked about the Sabbath. And as I said, we, since we touched on the Sabbath in, in Genesis 2, we're, we're going to, to bypass that for tonight. But but what we've seen here are, are three specific things, right? We've seen the, the Passover connected with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verses 4 through 8, verses 9 through 14. We have this, uh, this particular event that happens during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, namely the waving of the sheaf of the first fruits, And then verses 15 through 22, we have the Feast of Weeks and what we uh, know as the Day of Pentecost. And so these are the shadows. Now... As we move to the second point, we see that these shadows are fulfilled in Christ. They are all pointing ahead to him. Therefore, Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These things were shadows. Christ is the substance. And indeed, one writer went so far as to say that nowhere is the continuity between the Testaments so clear as in the calendar. Now, at first, that might, that might sound a little bit shocking, like, what in the world? Can the continuity between the Testaments made clear in the calendar? Well, let's, let's think about this a little bit. We find in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Sabbath points us forward to the rest which we have and will have in Christ. Certainly a lot more could be, could be said about Hebrews 4. I'm not, not going to attempt to say it tonight. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul speaks of Christ 
as our Passover. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb caused the, the judgment of God to pass over the households of those who were under its blood, even so, the judgment of God passes over all of those who are under the blood of Christ. The Passover in Egypt was a small picture of what was coming, both in judgment and in mercy. The mercy of God, which was shown to the Israelites there in Egypt, was but a small picture of the great mercy which will be poured out, which was to be poured out when Christ, our great Passover lamb, was slain. All who take refuge under Christ's blood receive not simply a physical deliverance, as in the Passover of old, but rather an eternal and spiritual deliverance through the forgiveness of sins. The wrath of God passes over us for all time, and we are saved. Jesus is our Passover lamb. John calls him, John 129, excuse me, John the Baptist speaks of him as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we also find in the New Testament that Christ is the firstfruits. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23, when he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And think about this. Just as the, the first fruits was, was offered up as a wave offering to the Lord on the day after the Sabbath during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, so also Christ himself was raised up by the glory of the Father on the first day of the week. As John Pearson expressed it in his exposition of the Apostles' Creed, as the sheaf was lifted up and waved and the lamb was offered on that day by the priest to God, so the promised Messiah, that immaculate lamb which was to die, that priest which dying was to offer up himself to God, was upon this day to be lifted up and raised from the dead, or rather to shake and lift up and present himself to God, so to be accepted for us all, so that our dust might be sanctified, our corruption hallowed, our mortality consecrated to eternity. Just as the sheaf was lifted up, so also Christ was raised from the dead, and both during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was on the day of Pentecost, at the, the Feast of Ingathering, that the Spirit was given. Acts chapter 2, in the New Testament church was born. The first fruits of the Spirit were given in fullness and power on that day of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Paul refers to the, the first fruits of the Spirit in Romans 8, 23. And so it is in this way that these feasts and Sabbaths were shadows that are pointing to the substance which belongs to Christ. And so in the Old Testament times, God was, by these means, painting a picture for us of what was to come in Christ. And you and I, my friends, are the recipients of these great gospel blessings. Our Passover lamb has been offered. And so, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ has been lifted up from the grave as the first fruits of the resurrection. And all of us who are in Christ 
are already raised with him spiritually, and we await the day of his return so that our dead bodies will be gloriously raised by him to be with him forever. The, the first fruits has been raised. The rest of the crop will be gathered in. If I can quote John Pearson again, we are the members of that body of which Christ is the head. And if the head be risen, the members cannot be far behind. He is the firstborn from the dead, and we are the sons of the resurrection. And likewise, we're the recipients of the Spirit, and we are included in God's great harvest. And so then let us live like those who have the Holy Spirit within us. Let's not grieve the Spirit by our sin, but rather let us bear that holy fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and bring it forth in our lives because we see the substance of these shadows in the New Testament realities. Let us then take courage take comfort and continue to walk with the Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the way in which these things are all pointing ahead to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with, with great joy of knowing, knowing the end for which these feasts were ordained, knowing that now we have rest in Christ knowing that our Passover lamb has been slain, knowing that Christ the firstfruits is raised from the dead, and knowing that we have the firstfruits of the Spirit within us because the Spirit was poured out on that day of Pentecost. Father, we give thanks for your great gospel blessings which you give to us. Lord, we ask that you would conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Let us bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.